America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. If you're like us, dear listener, you're a bit overwhelmed by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. And our next sponsor has provided us with some very interesting facts that we would like to pass on to you. Fact number one. Teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or a slightly yellowish undertone. Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact number three. Tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is a device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky. They don't create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is a custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head on over to smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you'd pay at the dentist. Oh, and um, if you grind your teeth at night, by the way, like me, Kemper, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards once again for a fraction of the price the dentist charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use special All About Agatha coupon code AGATHA, A-G-A-T-H-A, you know how it's spelled, for an exclusive All About Agatha discount. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And what are we doing this week, Kemper? Are we perhaps visiting somebody that you are very fond of? 
We are visiting Miss Marple, which is, of course, always just cause for joy on a personal level. We will be discussing the case of the caretaker, a Miss Marple short story. But before we even get into that, we have some late breaking news, actually. Like, like this actually um, just broke when we were uh, doing notes for this episode, in fact. There's a really, really exciting book announcement I just read in Publishers Weekly about a short story collection that HarperCollins is going to be putting out at some point in the near-ish future. I believe that next I've, year. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, but we're going to be talking a lot about Endless Night in this episode because <laughs> this short story is essentially Endless Night Redux. <laughs> but... On our interview with Matthew Pritchard, which we referenced at the beginning of our Endless Night episode, we finished that interview by asking him, as we ask everyone, who do you like more, Miss Marple or Poirot? And he had a definitive answer, and he said Miss Marple, which was interesting. And then, of course, I, I believe I raised my arms in jubilation because <laughs> I'm, I'm you know, the resonant Marpleite on the podcast. And I remember Matthew saying, hey, hey, well... Hey, hey, I like me some dark marble theories, Kemper. And I love me some Papa Poirot. I mean, you know, when we speak of likes and dislikes on this podcast, it is always a relative statement, the most relative statement possible. We, we all know this at this point. But I remember Matthew saying, well, Kemper, there's going to be an announcement sometime soon that I think you're going to be very excited by. And I kind of knew that he had to be talking about some sort of new Marple material because it's it's a little bit been like waiting for the other shoe to drop since our dear friend of the podcast Sophie Hanna has been doing these Poirot continuation novels. It's kind of like okay, well, if the estate is willing to do Poirot, of course at some point they're going to do Marple, right? Right, and I think that we have some very interesting uh, choices involved with Marple, don't we? Yeah, well, what's really exciting about this is that it's not, as in the case with Sophie Hanna's continuation books, it's not a novel. This is not going to be a Miss Marple novel. This is actually going to be a collection of Miss Marple short stories, which I think is really smart because Christie herself, you know, said that short stories really are Miss Marple's milieu. That's where she makes the most sense and where she really shines. I think she shines anywhere, but I know what she means. I think that the the short story format fits Miss Marple quite well. So I think that that was a really interesting and smart choice for them to make. And this is the way that uh, the announcement was worded, which I find fascinating. An authorized short story collection starring Agatha Christie's detective Jane Marple, pitched as reimagining the sleuth through each author's unique perspective while staying true to the hallmarks of a traditional mystery. Featuring stories from Naomi Alderman, Lee Bardugo, Alyssa Cole, Lucy Foley, Ellie Griffiths, Natalie Haynes, Jean Kwok, Val McDermott, Karen M. McManus, Dreda Say Mitchell, Kate Moss, and Ruth Ware for publication at William Morrow, actually, in the U.S., which is an imprint of HarperCollins, which, of course, is traditional publisher of Christie. Rights have also gone to Harper in the U.K., Interestingly, I mean, I believe that every single one of those names is a female name. 
So I'm not sure if this is going to be exclusively female authors, but it seems like it is, which is also very interesting. I know. And we, as longtime listeners know, obviously we've had Ruth on in the past. So very excited about that news. And there are a number of other authors on that list that I think that may be just hinting slightly we might be having on in future episodes. So I am pretty excited about this, Kemper. Oh yeah, I'm psyched. So publication is later for fall 2022. So we've got a year to look forward to this. And you know what? I think we could all use some joyous things to look forward to. So we just wanted to make sure all of you, especially those who are not as up to speed on the interwebs, were aware that this is happening. And what better time to be able to... Also, please don't do what I do and spend half your time on Twitter. It's not necessarily the best approach. <laughs> but if you are on Twitter, do say hi to Catherine. Either I know. I will our, definitely say hi back. So yeah, our, our official account or her personal account. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is, this is super exciting. It sounds like they're approaching this in a really interesting way. I love that approach. And it's kind of what Sophie also did with her Poirot continuation novels where, you know, she was not trying to imitate Christie's voice or her writing style. She was very much writing a Sophie Hannon novel with the characters she created, but then broadening out the Poirot verse. So I'm going to well, be really interested to see what they do here. I mean, and also, you know, another friend of our podcast, Anthony Horowitz, did a similar thing with Sherlock Holmes and with Bond. Indeed. This is an interesting trend. And uh, I'm very curious in all honesty, to see what is going to happen with the short stories. Yeah. And that's, you know, I'm sure some of you will meet this news with great consternation and perhaps not as much excitement, but I think, you know, it's important to keep an open mind and I'm really looking forward to seeing what all of these fantastic authors end up offering as to more Miss Marple. I mean, my God, the fact that I can say more Miss Marple, I can barely even hold it together for this episode, but I suppose I'm going to have to somehow. We are talking about a Miss Marple short story. What are we covering, Catherine? We're covering the case of the caretaker. And as Kemper already noted, uh, we're basically also just talking again about Endless Night. So in case you didn't get enough from the last episode, um, (laughs) we are going to be talking more about it because here's an interesting thing. The case of the caretaker kind of the, let's say, very rough draft of Endless Night? It really is. I mean, I mentioned this on our Endless Night episode, but the reason that we held off covering the short story until now is that it really would have just spoiled the plot of Endless Night because it's the same plot. And it would have been awkward, I think, to talk about the short story because we would have had to have mentioned the Endless Night of it all before covering endless night. So this should go without saying, but far be it from us to spoil a novel as brilliant as endless night. Therefore, consider yourself forewarned. If you do not want the plot of endless night spoiled, please stop listening now, go read endless night, and then come back and join us. We actually, you know, only have one other Miss Marple short story left after this one. And we really have been holding off on this Miss Marple short story. And then, you know, I think we're going to save the last one until the very end of the podcast because we always have to have some Miss Marple to look forward to. I've got to have a reason to live after all. So, Aww. uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I suppose we should uh, talk about the publication history of the short story. And it's actually a really interesting one. There is a special chapter in the second volume of John Curran's books about Agatha Christie's notebooks. So this one's called Agatha Christie, Murder in the Making, More Stories and Secrets from the Notebooks. And he deep dives into some of the minutia of the Christie verse that he didn't get a chance to talk about in the first volume. And this short story is one of those cases. So just starting off as to the publication history of the actual short story that was published, The Case of the Caretaker. It was first published in the UK in The Strand in January of 1942. And it was actually published right around the same time that Tape Measure Murder and The Case of the Perfect Maid were published. They were published one month and two months, respectively, after this short story, also in The Strand. And as Curran writes, these short stories can be seen as preludes to Miss Marple's looming investigation of the body in the library in May 1942. So between the 13 problems, which were the first Miss Marple short stories that Christie wrote, and which we've covered ages ago, um, those were in 1932 that the collection was published. And the publication of these three short stories, we actually didn't get any Miss Marple except for or Miss Marple Tells a Story, which is, you know, that very mm-hmm. strange outlier of a Miss Marple short story. And that was in 1935. That's the one that Christie narrated herself as Miss Marple on the radio. This short story was also published in the U.S., of course, in the Chicago Sunday Tribune in July of 1942. There is actually a second unpublished version of this story that exists. And John Curran publishes it for the first time in that second volume. But I think what we'll do is that I will leave the rather fascinating story about that unpublished version in reserve till mm-hmm. we are on Intriguing. the other side of our summary. A little bit of intrigue, since we do sort of know the plot <laughs> of this story, given that we just covered Endless Night. Why don't we get right into it, Catherine? Who is our victim here? Uh, It's Louise Laxton, who is a very fair, pretty, meek, Anglo-French heiress. We're told that she has normally spent her time between London and the Riviera, which sounds honestly quite nice right now. Lovely. (laughs) However, what's not so nice is that she's thrown from her horse and dies. Does that sound maybe a bit familiar? Sounds a little familiar, but an Anglo-French heiress, not an American heiress. So, All right. Well, we have a couple of suspects. First up is Harry Laxton, Louise's vibrant husband. He is a local man, and he has brought her to the country estate where he had grown up, but not in the big house. He actually grew up in the dower house which is, of course, the small house uh, adjoining the big house Mm -hmm. on the property. But he has bought the big house, which is where he brings his bride, Louise. And the name of that house is Kingsdean House. Right. Then we have Mrs. Murgatroyd, the late caretaker's (laughs) wife, who had been kicked out of Kingsdean House to a cottage. And she's now a deranged stalker. Interesting trajectory for Mrs. Murgatroyd. Then we have Mrs. Bella Edge, who is the chemist's wife and who once had a relationship with Harry when they were younger. And then we have Clarice Vane, who is Dr. Haydock's niece. And uh, she's a similarly bright young woman, much like Bella, actually, who befriends Louise. And, you know, I believe I heard a hint of Hannibal Lecter there Uh, in your delivery of Clarice. do Do you think? 
<laughs> I was reading though, interestingly, it's a little bit of a Mandela effect where everyone remembers Anthony Hopkins saying, hello, Clarice. He actually never says hello, Clarice, ever in The Silence of the Lambs. It's very- Is it a little again, like play it again, Sam? It's like play it again, Sam. I mean, I think the biggest Mandela effect is from Star Wars where everyone remembers Luke, I am your father, but he actually says, no, I am your father. And obviously says Luke at other times. And it's a similar thing here. You know, they meet- he says her name a lot. It's super creepy, but he never actually says hello, Clarice. Just I always think it's play it again, Sam, but... I think it's play it, Sam. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Yeah, it's 100% <laughs> not play it again, Sam, though. And it's funny because then, of course, there's the Woody Allen play slash movie called Play It Again, Sam which makes it even right. more confusing. So yeah, but you're totally right. That is like an interesting thing. But yes, I did say Clarice in a Hannibal Lecter-esque way. <laughs> and if we want to go all Shakespeare, because, you know, Christy loves her Shakespeare, the alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. That's like the OG Mandela effect line. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him Horatio. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The world as it appears to be, Kemper. So poor Miss Marple has the flu. So she's bedridden. And depressed. Oh, really unhappy. And like, listen, folks, you're listening to this in September of 2021. I think we all can feel what Miss Marple's feeling right now. Well, it's one of those quirks of the Christieverse, right? When you have the flu, you get emotionally depressed at the end of it. That is a thing that has happened more than once. Now. It Absolutely. But she's, you know, basically bedridden, but she's on the mend. And Dr. Haydock checks in on her and he brings her a present, which is really nice, right? He wrote her a story, which I love when people write me stories. So that's awesome. And he tells her, you know, basically the facts are all true and he wants her opinion. At least ostensibly, he wants her opinion. It's basically a puzzle for her to keep her occupied because she's in a bit of a funk because she is stuck in her house. Again, what can we all relate to? So he hands it over to her and says that he'll come back and check on her and get her opinion on it later. Right. Like we all know what he's doing when mm-hmm. he gives her. And she knows what he's doing. And she does too. Well, she's Miss Marple. She's omniscient. But this story, I have to say before we jump right into it, because it's the lion's share of the rest of the story, except for an epilogue at the very end, sounds suspiciously like an Agatha Christie story. <laughs> hey, we were just talking about people inhabiting Agatha, Agatha Christie's voice or not. Dr. Haydock maybe should do one of these Miss Marvel continuation stories because he sure seems good at it. Although I will, we can save this till later, but you know what he's not writing like is he's actually not writing like Endless Night. No, he is very much writing a Miss Marple short story. Correct. So here is the story of the case of the caretaker. Harry Laxton, local, you know, son of the village, he has done quite well by himself. He did seem to be a bit of a 'er ne'er-do-well in his younger days, but apparently he has made good. He has married a rich and lovely heiress who he has brought back to King's Dean House since 
he married this heiress, he's able to buy that house, which, you know, to him was always unattainable when he was living in the much more modest dower house. They promptly tear down King's Dean House to build a gorgeous, modern, white marvel of a place. Hmm, that sounds pretty familiar. It very much does. And Louise, or Mrs. Harry, as she is occasionally referred to in this, is immediately a bit distressed by having to play hostess to basically, let's just say, all of the old ladies in neighboring towns. She has no friends. She doesn't know how to garden. Or rather, there's like a lovely line about how she only knows the final step, which is about arranging the flowers. Yes, you know, like once they've been cut, she knows how to arrange them in vases. Correct. She's bored and she's promptly terrorized by the former caretaker's wife, Mrs. Murgatroyd, who lingers outside the gates of the estate, like in a ditch, cursing at the couple. And by cursing, I mean in both forms of the word. There's a suggestion that she's just screaming at them. And then there's also the suggestion that she is literally cursing them. The reason why Mrs. Murgatroyd is so angry is that her husband has died. He died, I believe, two years earlier. And they had lived in a corner of the decrepit old mansion, Kingsdean House, for years. And she had just been living on in the in the old house, in the big house by herself. But obviously that could no longer continue once they wanted to tear down the old house. So what Mr. Harry did was to arrange for a much nicer cottage for Mrs. Murgatroyd on the grounds. But she seems to want none of it. And she is just angry that she was driven out of what she believes is her house and her way of life. And she has focused all of her rage on Louise, the woman who came in and was trying to supplant her. Right. And I mean, we sh- King's Dean House, the roof had fallen in, in parts of it. I mean, it was not like this was a salvageable house. They were essentially squatting is basically what they basically. were doing. I mean, they were not living well. No. And what he's offering her is actually, again, a, a nice little snug cottage. Meanwhile, while this is happening, no one in the village wants to tell Louise that Harry used to be heavily involved with Bella Edge, um, who's this vivacious, probably 30-something brunette. But Harry arranges a friendship between Louise and Clarice Vane, who is, by the way, another vivacious brunette. And they end up riding horses together. They hang out in the new house. And Louise is, you know, happy or happier. Let's put it that way. Harry also bought Louise uh, apparently a very beautiful chestnut horse uh, that she named Printel. Little Shakespeare reference there. For mm-hmm. good measure. <laughs> for good measure, for measure. Oh, so. Har, har. <laughs> oh my gosh. You with the dad jokes. <laughs> So yeah, we should also note, I mean, because you're absolutely right, Catherine, that, you know, the story very much reads not like Endless Night, but like a Miss Marple short story in that we do have this trio of gossiping ladies, mm-hmm. right? There's Mrs. Price, Miss Harmon, and Miss Brent, and mm-hmm. they're constantly on the sidelines 
wanting to stir up trouble so they can see what happens as a result. And there's this great scene in the chemist shop, right? Where they basically are like, oh, what's going to happen? Because now Bella's going to be here. And, you know, Harry's wife, Louise, is here. And someone really needs to tell her that those two had been involved. And much to their chagrin, Harry actually, in his sort of charming way, lets the cat out of the bag, right? And he's like, Bella, my old, you know, love. We went out, Louise. Isn't that so funny? And Louise smiles at her and she's not threatened whatsoever. And it seems to take the wind out of the sails of all of that intrigue. Oh, it's the smartest thing. The, the smartest approach to most things like that is to not have any secrets. Because if you don't have any secrets, what can be used against you? Right, right. So, so in some ways, it seems like, okay, maybe Louise is settling down and she's so lucky that she has this handsome, charming husband and he's back in his village and he's made good and this is all wonderful. But the situation with Mrs. Murgatroyd just does not improve. And Louise is also lonely at King's Dean House. I mean, yes, she has Clarice and she has her husband, but, you know, she doesn't quite fit in this village landscape. Mrs. Murgatroyd just won't leave her alone. She keeps mumbling curses at her. She comes out in the road whenever Louise is out riding or driving or anything. Walking. Walking, yeah. And, you know, Mrs. Murgatroyd really is acting like a witch, or dare we say, and we wouldn't dare use this word if it were not one that we were forced to use many a time in our previous episode for Endless Night. But... Her behavior is rather like the quote-unquote gypsy woman who we came across in that novel, Mrs. Lee. Right. So Louise, after all this torture, basically, or harassment, we'll say, is riding on Prince Hal when Mrs. Murgatroyd spooks them both and Louise is thrown from the horse. She's come across by two local men in a van. She's still alive, but she's badly injured. They carry her into the house and she dies promptly right before Dr. Haydock makes it to the house. It's a tragic accident, I suppose. Terribly tragic accident, right? We're not going to belabor the point, given that we just covered, again, Endless Night. But we do have a a few, I think, clues that are specific to this Miss Marple-ish short story, and just that are slightly different from what we had in Endless Night, given that this does read very much like a traditional Agatha Christie short story. So whereas in Endless Night, the focus was very much on character and not so much the plot, you know, we talked about how that wasn't a puzzle mystery. This really is a puzzle mystery actually. And what little focus there is, since it's a short story, we can play squarely on solving the puzzle Mm -hmm. mystery. So with that in mind, I'll start us off here on our clue number one. And I'm going to have to apologize to Miss Marple because I can't believe that I am doing this, but I'm going to quote our beloved Hercule Poirot for a second here. (gasps) Cal episode. I know. And specifically, I'm going to quote him as to the power of people's belief in the supernatural. So please skip ahead if you haven't yet read podcast favorite, The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb. It's been a while. Uh, I think Catherine and I are frankly both still scarred by the whole tetanus subplot in that story. Oh yeah, I stepped, on, I stepped on something metal recently, Kemper, and that was the only thing that I could think of. And <laughs> I just, yes, I'll never get over it. 
I have like a little note in my important files folder that just has the date of my last tetanus shot on it. And I'm not kidding you. I think I consult that note at least three to four times a year. (laughs) Every time I cut myself, and it doesn't have to be on metal, by the way. Like I know people focus on rusted metal, but it can be a lot of different things. I mean, tetanus is found on a lot of different surfaces, people. Every time I cut myself badly, I'm like, oh, uh oh, when was my last tetanus shot? <laughs> Oof. Yeah, I think I'm probably due one. So now you're freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> Stay on top of that, everyone. It's got to be at least every 10 years, really five to 10 years. I mean, when I start getting close to 10, I get nervous. Um, I think I think I'm at six. So okay. I think you're, I'm good. You're okay. You're okay. Yeah. We know just in general that Christy doesn't really traffic in the supernatural, right? She's not into that hocus pocus sort of stuff. But just because you don't believe in the supernatural yourself doesn't mean that you can't harness the power of others' belief in the supernatural for your nefarious purposes. And that's exactly what we saw happen in The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb. And perhaps that's what's happening here. Obviously, Mrs. Murgatroyd is not a witch. She does not have any supernatural powers. She doesn't have the actual ability to curse anyone. Especially since, if we step back and think about it, does it even make sense that Mrs. Murgatroyd is as angry as she is? She was living in a house that essentially had no roof on it. It was probably open to the elements and freezing Mm -hmm. half the time in England. And now she has a nice cottage with a roof over it. Harry even gives her tickets to visit her son in the US. He's giving her monetary compensation for her trouble and having to be moved. Does it really make sense that Mrs. Murgatroyd would be as angry as she is about having to be moved out of Kingsdean House? No, it does not. So our deduction there is that Perhaps she has a different reason for stalking the couple, given that she's been paid already. Perhaps someone is paying her to do all of this stalking and to pretend to be a witch slash gypsy. Yeah. Well, clue number two, there's a character, Kemper, married to a chemist, Bella, who, let me see, she used to be almost married to Harry. I think a deduction here might be that when you see a mention of a chemist in Christie, maybe you should be a little suspect as to what's going on. And it's funny, even in a story where a poisoning doesn't seem to have happened, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> but even in a story like this, you're, but you it, know, we should be very, laser but, focused uh, on chemists. We should, I, I think that this is also a good note to make is that the story is actually really short. And so if you're getting a repeated mention of a chemist in a very short story, probably there's something going on there. Absolutely. All right. Our final clue, and this one also I think is interesting because we do see a vestige of it, a latent vestige of it in Endless Night. And we get this from time to time in Christie, especially in Miss Marple stories, I think. It's one of those clues that I want to make fun of, but I actually think that I would be foolish to do so because it's also kind of accurate. And basically what it boils down to is that people have types. So if, say, a guy tends to go for buxom, dark-haired ladies, then maybe the elfin blonde who he just married isn't so much his cup of tea as, oh, say, a younger, buxom, dark-haired lady in the vicinity. So the deduction here, and this is so Christy, because, you know, it's, it's as to interpersonal dynamics and matters of attraction between the sexes. Our deduction here is that 
we should be able to figure out that Harry really isn't into Louise. He married her for her money. She's fair. She's slight. She's the opposite of dark and buxom, which is what Bella was. And we know that he was into Bella for Bella because he was into her when he was just a young lad and had no ulterior motives. And we are told that Clarice the good doctor's niece is also dark-haired and buxom, that she looks a lot like a younger Bella. And what's fascinating to me is that I do think we have a vestige of this in Endless Night because Christy definitely makes a point of describing the two female points of her love triangle in very different ways. Like, it's very obvious that they look very different from each other, right? Ellie is elfin. She's actually brown-haired and you know, not as vivacious as Greta, who is buxom and blonde, and she looks like a Valkyrie. And it's just a completely different type. And we don't really have this clue in Endless Night, because again, the clues aren't the point in Endless Night. It's not like Mike ever says, you know, I only like blondes. <laughs> I don't I don't well, really go I mean, for brunettes. But we should kind of be able to figure that out. No, and I mean, I, I will circle back to what we talked about in the Endless Night episode, is that we also just covered Rebecca, Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca on Patreon. And you get a very similar thing going on there because in the famous, I mean, this is not a spoiler, but in the famous scene in the book and in every single adaptation where the narrator comes down for the ball, she is on a wig, but it's pretty much described in the book that she does not look like Rebecca. So, I mean, you see that, like, there's, like, a theme here. And, you know, I have to say that it applies in real life. This is not a literary trope. I have seen it with people in real life, too. Where you see somebody with somebody who doesn't look necessarily like anybody else they've been with. And you Mm -hmm. think, what exactly is going on here? Yeah, meaning it should make us question the relationship between Maxim and the nameless narrator. Yeah, and abso- or Maxim and Rebecca, right? Because oh, either, either, so either, or either, or, and I think then here you have to, you know, obviously make the deduction right that Harry doesn't like Louise, and also personality wise, because that's also made the point is that Louise is really meek, mm. and the other women are kind of outspoken and vivacious. They're jovial and mm-hmm. lively. And yes, absolutely. No, it's a really smart clue. I mean, that's mm-hmm. th- this is textbook Christie because she's being yep. smart about people. I mean, that's why I said I want to make fun of it or I want to categorize it with some of those more old-fashioned clues sometimes that we come across in Christie where we roll our eyes slightly. But I think she's dead on here, actually. Mm-hmm. So. Yep, agreed. All right. Well, given those clues, I think we're ready to resolve this thing, aren't we, Catherine? Oh, yeah. I mean, you guys listening all know where this is going, but uh, poor Louise was actually thrown from her horse in this version because Mrs. Murgatroyd was deliberately working on spooking the horse. And then it's suspected that perhaps, quote unquote, someone shot an air gun again to spook the horse. So she was legitimately injured. The horse Mm -hmm. did throw her, but... What happened then, Kemper? Well, once poor Louise was taken into the house, her husband, Harry, injected her with strophanthin to finish the job before Dr. Haydock could get there. Jammed some poison via a needle into her bloodstream. Classy. But turns out also Harry's a moron. So 
what we find out then is Dr. Haydock comes back to Miss Marple's house. She's doing better. And asked her if she figured out what happened. And of course she has. She's solved all this. She knows basically what happened. And the kicker to it though, is that Dr. Haydock, when he came in, saw a hypodermic syringe fall out of Harry's pocket. And then Harry freaked out. (laughs) Good job, dude. Dr. Haydock obviously did an autopsy because Harry was not known for being, you know, like a drug fiend. He kind of was a little suspicious, as one would generally be if they saw a syringe fall out of your pocket. Yeah, he did an autopsy and obviously found that she'd been poisoned. So Harry also had obviously been paying Mrs. Murgatroyd to scare Louise as well. So that's awesome. And where did he get that strophanthin? Well, of course, he got it from Bella who is married to the chemist, but who is still in love with Harry. And just as an added extra little kicker, (laughs) he's not still in love with Bella since Bella's all old now. He is uh, in love with... Bella's probably younger than me. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Bella's probably like 32 if she's a day, right? Maybe 31. Oh boy. But in any case, he, like Hannibal Lecter, had eyes for Clarice, Haydock's niece, since she was the same type as Bella, which did not go unobserved by Miss Marple, and went a long way toward her solving of this puzzle mystery from her bed. And lo and behold, Miss Marple is feeling a whole lot better too. Dr. Haydock is such a good doctor. I mean, talk about an armchair detective, right? Miss Marple didn't even have to sit upright for this one. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So Kemper, just hypothetically speaking, of course, let's say you were trying to pick out China with your fiance who happens to be a member of the reptilia class within the animal kingdom. What sort of pattern do you think might best speak to that kind of union? Um, Catherine, you're not actually contemplating marriage with Howie the Lizard, are you? Well, you know, Kemper, we really just want to take things to the next level, and I I really don't feel like I should make any apologies about that. Uh, Nor do I, Catherine, but luckily for you, there's no need for you and Howie to leave the safe space of Best Fiends, because there is always another level for you two to take things inside the game itself. Did you know, in fact, that the game doesn't just get harder, the puzzles actually require different problem-solving skills the further you get into the game. It's ever-evolving, and that is a beautiful thing. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Best friends without the R, Best Fiends. We should mention that there are no adaptations for this short story. We did discuss in our last episode for Endless Night how curious it was that the ITV's Marple series chose to adapt Endless Night as a Miss Marple episode, stuffing Miss Marple rather unceremoniously into that plot rather than just choosing this story, which featured the same plot and actually was a Miss Marple story. Although 
perhaps we can understand why they thought it might be rather awkward to bring this particular version of the story to life, given how passive Miss Marple is. It wouldn't make very good television for Miss Marple to be sitting in bed and reading a manuscript after all, which we would, I suppose, flash back to. That would be super weird. But this is actually a great segue into that alternate version that I teased at the beginning of the episode. Because as John Curran tells us in his book, we actually have an earlier version of the story. And just to be clear, this isn't one of those situations where the US and UK versions are different. Both the publications of the story on either side of the pond are the one we just discussed. The one which involves Miss Marple lying in bed and reading a manuscript Dr. Haydock leaves her and then solving it. But among Christie's papers is an unpublished version of this story, which, as Curran puts it, is the more straightforward and logical one. Because there's no story within a story as there is in the published well, version. Well, that actually is what we get in the original Miss Marple short stories. Sitting around a fireplace and somebody narrating a story. It's actually very much in keeping with them. I agree with you that that's a fair point. There's an argument to be made that the framing device makes this fit better with the 13 Problems collection, though I think we should remember that this story was being published alongside Tape Measure Murder and The Case of the Perfect Maid, which don't have any framing devices either. Also, the 13th story within the 13 Problems collection did not have a frame. That would be Death by Drowning. I'd also argue that while the framing device works in the 13 problems because it links the stories to each other, it's just incredibly awkward here. I mean, why exactly is Dr. Haydock writing a manuscript? We never see these writerly inclinations on his part in any other story. It's just a bit random. But maybe Christy agreed with you, Catherine, because she did alter the manuscript to include the framing device. Probably, as John Kern theorizes, because some pesky editor asked her to, maybe the one at the Strand where the story was first published. But as Curran points out, the fact that the U.S. version is the same means that Christie must have submitted the altered version to the Chicago Sunday Tribune, since that's also what they published. But the reason I thought it was worth bringing up is that the differences between the two stories don't just end with the framing device. So in the published version, we're not told till very late in the story that the setting is actually St. Mary Mead. And if we step back to think about that for a second, that's kind of a problem. Since why wouldn't Miss Marple know about this case already? It's true, she's been in bed with the flu, Mm -hmm. but surely her maid would have told her something or she would have at least known some, if not all, of the people involved. And yet she seems to know nothing about them. It's just a story she's reading. And I think by comparing the published version to the unpublished version, we can be pretty sure that Christy made an error here um, and that she meant to leave out any reference to St. Mary Mead because in the earlier unpublished version, St. Mary Mead gets name-checked in the second sentence. It's very clearly set there from the Mm get-go. And not only that, and I love this, but the three gossiping women in the published version, Mrs. Price, Miss Harmon, and Miss Brent, who we mentioned before, uh, those three women in the earlier version assume what is obviously their true identities. They are, of course, three women we've seen in many a Marple story before. That would be the officious widow, Mrs. Price Ridley, the booming Miss Hartnell, and the fluttery, rather dithering Miss Weatherby. Mm-hmm. Yes. As Kern points out, actually, it gets even more confusing that Christie renamed Miss Hartnell Miss Harmon, since Harmon is the name of the vicar's wife in a murder is announced, and also in the only Miss Marvel short story we haven't read at this point, Sanctuary. 
But yeah, the fact that St. Mary Mead was taken out of the second sentence of the published version, but then left in much later, feels like a sloppy error to me. And it actually makes me think that at least some of these changes may have been the work of an editor rather than Christie herself. And I'll get back to that theory in a moment because John Curran agrees with me. Personally, I think they should have just made it a different town altogether. I mean, it's believable enough that Dr. Haydock would serve other towns in the county, especially ones where his niece lived, and that some of them would be far enough away to have escaped even Miss Marple's eagle-eyed observation from her garden. (laughs) Okay, so there are three other notable differences between the two versions. Right. First, Miss Marple is much more active in the unpublished version, since it plays out like a regular Miss Marple story in which she visits people in and around St. Mary Mead and talks to them, etc., etc. This is a good thing, of course. Second, the solution to the mystery is much more elegant in the unpublished version. Basically, Miss Marple figures out the solution, as she does, but Harry is still roaming free. No one else knows yet what he's done, and Miss Marple is just theorizing. She doesn't have any proof, which is so often the case at the end of a Miss Marple story. That's why she has to lay traps. And she goes to Dr. Haydock, and she says, you have to do something about this because it's wrong, and also you need to protect your niece. And Dr. Haydock, smart man that he is, listens to Miss Marple, and he vows that he will. And then the story ends with Miss Marple murmuring, poor little rich girl. Well, a poor little rich girl comes up in the case of the caretaker as well. Oh, absolutely. I think the poor little rich girl echoes are the strongest connective tissue, actually, that we can see between this short story and Endless Night when it comes to tone, of course, rather than plot. Correct. And I love that the unpublished version drove the point home even harder than the version Christie had to change before publishing. Yeah, I mean, I think by ending this way, Christie just doesn't have to make Harry such a doofus. He doesn't (laughs) drop a hypodermic needle out of his pocket. And that really does defy belief. And this is where John Curran, you know, who thinks that this was such a ludicrous plot point, theorizes himself that an editor added this. He says, I cannot believe that Agatha Christie ever envisioned such a scene. This must be the invention of a poor, he puts that in parentheses, magazine editor. So who knows, maybe the editor at the Strand was just going hog wild here with this story and making all sorts of additions and deletions and amendments and what have you. But yeah, we can see the reason for the change in the published version, since Christie obviously needed Dr. Haydock to know the answer definitively when Miss Marple asked him how it turned out, since she's just been lying in her bed this whole time. So the story just has to jump through a bunch of hoops rather awkwardly to get there. The third and final notable difference is the title, because this unpublished version is actually called The Case of the Caretaker's Wife not the case of the caretaker. And as Curran points out, that title makes a whole lot more sense. I'm going to quote him again. Mrs. Murgatroyd's husband was the caretaker, and he has been dead for two years in both versions. So why call the story the case of the caretaker? I completely agree. It's all about Mrs. Murgatroyd. You know, she's the key player, other than Harry and Bella, of course, in this plot. So that should really be reflected in the title. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think this is 100% worth reading. I mean, it's it's going to be a very fast read for any of you listening, but it's especially interesting in conjunction with Endless Night, I think. Absolutely. I totally agree. Okay, I actually have just one more point I want to make, and I think you'll really appreciate this, Catherine. It's not a difference between the two texts. It's more something that could have been. So John Curran notes that the first time the name Clarice appears in the original typescript of the story, it was inserted by hand, and the following typed bit in the typescript had been deleted. Griselda Clement, the young and pretty wife of the vicar. 
So that means that originally Christie had been toying with the idea of making the object of Harry Laxton's affections none other than our favorite vicar's favorite wife from the murder at the vicarage, with cameos here and there and a few other stories, of course. Obviously, this would have been a bit weird for Christie's story, since Griselda is happily married and a mother by this point as well. Not that a wife and mother can't have her own sexy storyline. Perhaps you've been watching some sex life on Netflix. More power to you, dear listeners. But, (laughs) you know, not so much in a Christie short story from the early 40s. No. I'll let Kern sum up the differences between these two versions, because as usual, I think he puts it best. Overall, this newly discovered version is longer, more convincing, and more coherent than its predecessor. The awkward, not to mention unmotivated, manuscript ploy is replaced by a more straightforward narration in which Miss Marple takes center stage, where she belongs. I fully concur, Mr. Curran, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to check out the unpublished version in his book and to read them side by side. It's exactly what I did, and I found the comparison very interesting indeed. That is the case of the caretaker, or the case of the caretaker's wife, depending on which version you're reading. We hope you enjoyed our penultimate Miss Marple short story. We continue to savor all the short form Christie we have left. Join us in our next episode for a novel. Catherine, what are we covering? By the pricking of my thumbs. Very exciting. I am looking forward to it. Oh, I am so excited for this one. You know, we just might be getting some of our favorite thriller hijinks in this one. So we should all be on the lookout for priest's holes and hidden jewels and whatnot. Get excited, folks. Absolutely. And again, you know, we made an announcement about this, but we will be doing an event for the International Agatha Christie Festival on September 13th. At 3 p.m. local time in the U.K., We'll be unfortunately doing it from Los Angeles, but just wanted to again mention that that is happening, especially if you are in England and are not subject to a lot of testing regulations. And I think that there are a lot of people involved in that, that many of you would want to see or hear from. And we have some really exciting other interviews coming up and other events. So I think that fall is actually looking pretty promising, don't you think, Kemper? I do indeed. Lots of great episodes coming your way. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You could always check us out on our Patreon site over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You could send us an email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com, or you could find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can also find Catherine on Twitter at brobcat, and we are on Instagram. Our handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to leave a rating and or a review for us. It really helps us out, helps other people find the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.